Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Every Lent, I set up for myself sometimes some very crazy high standards. And I think to myself, this year, this Lent, I am going to do a million things and be super awesome. (laughs) On the surface, I tell myself that it is for the sake of my soul, for the stripping away of all that is not of God. But I think deep down inside, there's a little part of me that wants to be what St. Paul calls a super apostle, a mocking term for those who added to the gospel of Jesus Christ at the church in Corinth. This year was no different. I lasted 48 hours. But then I had a revelation. For me, this year, I think Lent is as much about the mortification of my flesh through abstaining of certain pleasures as it is about recultivating the habitual act of repentance, relearning repentance as a central part of the Christian life learning to recognize when we've sinned, learning to flee from the sins when it comes at us, but not simply to flee from it, but flee into the loving arms of God, flee into the grace of Christ who died on the cross for all of our sins, for each of us. Lent ends up being a different, different discipline. Some must abstain, others must add, while all perhaps need to continue to relearn that old habit of repenting regularly. I recently stumbled across an article upon about biblical manhood. The author lamented that one of the things that we tend to do as a church is tell people, men in particularly, what they must not do. And of course, these admonitions are good, but we rarely tell them what to do. And one of his exhortations towards the end of the article was that men of God do not merely avoid habitual sin, but cultivate habitual repentance. Lent is a season of habitual repentance, habitually turning away from our sin, turning back to God, daily dying to ourselves and daily coming alive in Christ. It is our opportunity to recapture that calling of habitual repentance. This morning's lesson is hard. And I would be lying if I said when I read it on Monday as I started to prepare that I thought, great, I get to preach on lust, adultery, and divorce. (laughs) And lying. Perhaps my attitude was not as good as it should have been. Because we are privileged to have a lectionary that guides and directs us so that ultimately we learn to submit ourselves to the whole teaching of Christ. Submit ourselves even to those parts that make us uncomfortable. And this is an uncomfortable subject. Because chances are, lust, divorce, or lack of truthfulness has affected each and every one of us in one way or another. If not all three, at least one or two of them. For we are sinners who are broken and who struggle to allow God to fill every inch of our hearts. 
and we chase after fleeting things. And so by the grace of God, we must wade through difficult passages such as these. For it is ultimately our calling to fill our hearts with the grace that we find in Christ. We are called to be endued with the Spirit to the glory of God in all things. And now before I go on, I want to say two things. First, I speak as one who has a log in my eye. I do not pretend to preach, presume to preach to you as one who is morally perfect, but as one who, like all of us, has sinned, who has fallen short of the glory of God, who has missed the mark we are called to. I struggled. I have struggled with all kinds of sins and seen the own dark, my own darkness in my heart. So do not hear me as one who is mightier than you, but as one who has sinned, who repents regularly, who is saved not by my own works, but by the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Hear one who finds Christ's strength in his own weakness. Secondly, as we work our way through this, you may very well find yourself being uncomfortable with this subject. Your conscience may arise and say, repent. And if this is the case, the Holy Spirit is calling you, drawing you back to Christ. This is God calling you to flee from whatever sin it is that you are struggling with. And in that, I pray that you would be reminded of what the Anglican Puritan Richard Sibbs once said. There is more grace in Christ than sin in us. While our sins may very well drive us to our knees, may very well make us feel broken and devastated inside, it is in our brokenness and while we are on our knees that Christ finds us and Christ redeems us. If we feel this sense of sin, if we feel this sense of brokenness, may we also be reminded to flee back to Christ. May that sense also remind us of his incredible mercy, his incredible goodness. May we not despair, but turn back to Christ and ask for our brothers and sisters in Christ's help in running the race that is set before us. Now, you may be wondering, why even bother talking about this? Or perhaps you're thinking, this is uncomfortable. I don't want our unmarried celibate priest to talk about sexuality. <laughs> but I want you to think about something for a minute. The average American over the age of 15 spends two hours and 46 minutes a day watching TV. But this number nearly doubles for retirees over the age of 65 to four hours and 14 minutes a day. <coughs> Now, perhaps some of, these, some of these shows are edifying, but a lot of what we consume on television tells us the antithesis of the gospel of hope, tells us the antithesis of the message of purity, tells us that we should get what we want and we should get it now. It tells us that the hookup culture that is so pervasive in our world is okay and normal. It tells us that self-centeredness and selfishness is a good way to live and praise sexual immorality as good, normal, and right. Meanwhile, we might spend an hour and a half or two, perhaps, in corporate worship a week, and another two or three hours in fellowship. 
So we spend 21 or more hours a week being catechized by the culture of the world, and at most five hours being catechized by the church. And perhaps if we're disciplined, a couple more in devotional life. If we do not live with a critical mind, if we are not diligent about how we fill our times, our hearts, and our minds, which is more likely to affect how we think? Which is more likely to form our minds and our souls? Which is more likely to shape our worldview? My friends, we must be on guard on what is forming our minds and aware of how we think through things and what affects our minds, bodies, and souls. And let us not be formed by secular culture, but let us be formed by the word of God. Be formed by his truth, by his church, and let us fully submit our lives to them, that they may be good and glorifying to God. So now, let us tackle this first uncomfortable thing. Christ says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How we view the other affects how we think of them. Upon seeing an attractive person, do we seek after that person for our own gratification? Do we, have, do we try to have them for our own pleasure in reality or in our mind? And let us take this a step deeper. I mentioned just a moment ago the statistics on the consumption of television. Because we live in a time and culture that has been classified as pornified, not just by concerned Christians, but secular commentators as well. In younger generations, pornographic consumption is normal. And shows on television that would have been considered objectionable 20 or 30 years ago for their objectification of women and sexual immorality are just normal, and we don't even blink. If we pause a moment and really think critically about this, I think we know this to be true. I could share here statistics on rates of consumption and annual budget, budgets for the porno, pornography in, industry as they are readily available. But I suspect that we do not need further evidence of this, and I do not wish to dwell in this dark and horrible place for too long. But let us be aware that sex, the sexualization of our culture is everywhere. And it has corrupted the heart of our present age. Perhaps you are wondering, why does this even matter? What I do in the privacy of my house is my business. Or perhaps what happens between two consenting adults is their business. How we view people is fundamental to our worldview. Are people there to fill our wants and needs? Are human beings there to fulfill our want for pleasure? Are we go using others to give our hearts someplace to rest instead of resting our hearts in God? One thing that I have noticed in talking with those who struggle with lust and sexual immorality is that they often feel this overwhelming sense of being unworthy of love. We live in an isolating culture. And these people typically feel so very alone, feel too broken for community, 
And sexual sin provides a brief reprieve from these feelings. It provides a brief, albeit artificial, connection with another. But my friends, although sin, whatever, although sin, whatever it may be, feels so dark and dreadful when it is upon us, and it may seem that as though it is a bleak and painful spiral that will never end, let me tell you that there is healing in repentance. There is healing in Christ. One of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine is this, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. Until we learn to allow our hearts to rest in the Lord, we will look for rest in other things. We will look for other things to fill them. Perhaps it isn't lust for you or sexual sin. It may be gluttony or greed or gossip or something else. But each of these at the end of the day will leave us empty. Instead, let us learn to root out these sins. Let us learn to let our hearts rest truly in the Lord and the Lord alone. And what shall we do to root out these sins? How do we live in such a time as ours? Christ's instructions are stark, are they not? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, let us not make the mistake of Origen, who took this one a bit too literally, who in fact removed a part of his body because it felt it caused him to sin, and he became hopeless. But with the exception of Origen, no church father or serious theologian takes this commandment literally but rather as a sharp and stern hyperbole that we give no room for sin. <clears throat> In a culture that looks at sexuality as fluid and throwaway, throw we are called to live a life of purity. We are called to give sin no place in our life. If there is something causing you to stumble, prayerfully root it out. This does not mean we will live perfect lives. And this certainly doesn't mean that we will live in constant perfection, as some have claimed. This is not the promise found in Holy Scripture. It does, however, mean that we are called to prefer the way of the Lord to the way of the flesh and the world. Now I hope that we have thoroughly established that lust and sexual sin is bad and it, that it should be rooted out. And I want to suggest a better way. There are many practical steps that we can take, but this morning I want to th mention just one. And that is, instead of seeing someone else as an object to be consumed or to place a place to find our happiness, that we recapture the other as the image bearer of God. In a collection of liturgical poems and prayers written by an Anglican priest called Every Moment Holy, he penned a prayer called Upon Seeing a Beautiful Person. And it captures the heart of what I'm trying to say so perfectly. It goes, Lord, I praise you for divine, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that it might 
so that my respond to their beauty would not be twisted and downward into envy or desire, but that I would be directed upwards in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. Let us learn to praise God for the beauty that we see, the goodness that we experience, all that is true and wonderful in the world, not to desire to have dominance over it, not even to make it our own, but let us learn to give thanks to God for all he has done. Now, my friends, the other, the brilliant, the beautiful, the funny, the fantastic, even the ugly and utterly destructive, the clown and the klutz, every single person that we will experience ever, each and every one of them is created in the image of God. Let us ever be mindful of this. Let us not grow to have a desire to have them for our own, but rather learn to love God all the more for the wonders that he has made for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. Now here, before we tackle divorce, I want to make one note as we read and meditate upon the Sermon on the Mount. We find that Christ does something interesting. He flips the cultural standard on its head. It is all fine and good to appear good, but Christ is more concerned with what is going on inside of the heart. For Christian purity comes from casting aside the sins of the mind and the heart. It comes not from simply avoiding bad things or looking good to the world, but with the prayer that God will give us new hearts. It is tempting to focus only on outward appearances, but let us be more concerned with God's healing of our own hearts. And now divorce. I pray as I, as I prepared this that I approached it with care. For I know divorce has touched several in our midst. I know that many of you have experienced divorce or someone that you love has gone through it for one reason or another. And if this is you, as we explore this difficult question, I encourage that each of us remember those words from Richard Sibbs. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Now first, let's be very clear. Divorce is bad. Period. Divorce is not the way that it was supposed to be, and our hearts should break when it happens. Christ makes clear that there is one reason for divorce, sexual immorality. The word is fairly all-encompassing. This can include an affair. It can include habitual, unrepentant use of pornography and basically anything in between and that that violates the sanctity of the marriage bed. Again, we see a high view of sexual purity being portrayed by Christ. Most theologians, though not all, though not all, agree that there are two other biblical reasons for divorce. The first is spousal abuse. I agree. Abuse, like sexual immorality, fundamentally shatters the covenant of marriage, and as such, we should give no quarter to it. Likewise, when a spouse is abandoned by the other, 
This is a reasonable cause for divorce. In all of these cases, we should take deep and careful care to bear love for the victim or victims and have sharp and strong calls to repentance for the perpetrator. Beyond this, Scripture gives no room for divorce. For some, this may be hard to hear, and for others, perhaps it is a comfort and an affirmation of their past. But in all of this, let us continually be mindful that there is grace found in Christ and in the deep, deep love of him. Next, let's take a moment to talk about why divorce is bad. God created the union of marriage to bring two people together, to bind two flesh into one for his glory and our sanctification. It is a reflection of God's love for his people. To fall into divorce breaks these bonds, it shatters the covenant, and it kills something that was meant to be good. I think what is best here is if you find these words to be a struggle or they hit close to home, let us spend time to talk privately. Let us dive deep into repentance and the grace of God, for God can heal all wounds. Let us dive deep into his healing goodness, so that he can draw so that and can draw so that he can draw us away from past pains and sin and into a deeper and more beautiful relationship with him. My friends, no matter how dark your past is, please be assured that God loves you. You are forgiven, and there is hope for a brighter future. Much can be said about the painful nature of divorce. But let us now turn and focus on how we move forward, how we can create better and healthier relationships, have better health, for we all come to the table with various brokenness. We all come with past hurts from people we thought we could trust. We all come with our own foibles and fears. Our culture tells us that the foundation of intimacy is sexuality. If instead of that, Christian, as Christians, we start with the simplest things, we realize that intimacy is not magically found, but it is built. Think for a moment about your walk with God. If you never come to church and never crack open your Bible, never pray, what will your relationship with God be like? It will not exist. If you only pray when you come to church on Sunday, and that is the only time you hear the word of God throughout your week, your relationship might be a little bit better, but not a whole lot. But if you find yourself in constant prayer, in the word, devouring it day in and day out, spending time in fellowship, being encouraged and encouraging one another, then your relationship with God will be deep and intimate. Why do we expect relationships to be any different? They take work. To quote a theologian that I know and respect deeply, great relationships are not simply discovered. They are slowly and skillfully built. As a community in a microwave world, let us commit to that slow and diligent building of relationships that last, and not just marriages, but friendships as well. That same theologian spells out three following ingredients that make for genuine friendships and truly intimate relationships. 
Now, again, let me be honest. I do not teach as someone who has relationships all figured out, but as someone who knows relational brokenness too well, as someone who has been hurt and who has hurt. But I believe that if we continue to focus on building good relationships within the body of Christ, if we focus on building intimate friendships and solid marriages, the world will be blessed by us. We will grow in Christ. We will continue to find healing from those past pains, whether it be divorce or family betrayal or other darkness from our past. At the foundation of good relationships comes emotional intimacy. Sharing with one another our burdens, our hurts, our past sorrows, and even our past sins. For as we share with God all our hurts and failures, we learn to trust when we become, when we become vulnerable with one another. Likewise, relational intimacy, committing time together, to time together, letting our yes be our yes and our no be our no, learning not only to bear with each other's delights, but each other's burdens, to walk through the sorrows of our souls. In this commitment to one another, it builds good, deep bonds and draws us closer and closer. Finally, appropriate touch, which you all know is my least favorite. But this continues the deeper bond of intimacy. In a culture that is profoundly touch-starved, we have an opportunity to model healthy touch. Touch that portrays not lust, but love. And even in touch that even we see Jesus using touch to heal and at times to show deep affection for these he loves. Think of John at the Last Supper. It is, our, it is out of these basic elements that good, strong friendships and marriage come. The sexual union that marks marriage comes after these, not before. And so when we wrongly order how we build our relationships, it is no wonder we see so much dysfunction. True intimacy comes from knowing each other, loving each other deeply and self-sacrificially, not from ha a desire of having someone for our own. So much could be said upon both of these topics, but I hope that we are encouraged, that we have deep, that we, that we have helped to deepen our hope in Jesus, helped us to turn away from fleeting worldly pleasures and not beat us down, but shown the richest love that Christ has poured out for us. Finally, we must note that Christ tells us to let our yes be a yes and no a no. Much ink has been spilled on this. What does it mean? Should, Christ make, should Christians make vows? Should we swear when we are called into court? These are worthy questions. But for now, simply know that the heart of this call is to be honest. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And if you can't do it for some reason, or if you aren't going to do it, say no. Yes, say yes when you mean yes, and no when you mean no. We have covered some hard topics, and I didn't spend nearly as much time as I could have on any of them. And I do not want to weigh you too heavily. Let us seek the holiness of God and that God has called us to, 
And remember that for all our foibles and failings, there is grace. I stumbled across this good quote that I'd like to end with. Having a Christian worldview means being utterly convinced that biblical principles are not only true, but also work better in the grit and grime of the real world. Having now started to establish a biblical principles of principled view of sexuality. Let us repent from our past sins. Let us turn away from the, our old way and stand firm in Christ. Not because we are better than others, but because we are thoroughly convinced that they are good. Because in the nitty gritty of life they work. Because life is better when we live in them. And most importantly, because we live in, when we live in Christ's holiness, our lives will glorify God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.